teenagers. And just before you in your presence, we, we lift them up. Each one of us acknowledging before your throne that whoever those kids are, you love them so much more than we can fathom. You know them, you care for them, and you will be the one to guide them into the future. So for this time, Lord, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help me that we would be uh, able to grow a little bit in stewarding the story we hand to the next generation? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The inheritance of each generation includes the stories of those who came before. Stories are what give us context. They, they encapsulate community values. They transmit collective memory. Origin stories, in particular, answer the question, where did we come from? Which at some point, every person asks. Now, we all have inherited stories from the past, and sometimes the stories are tied to you know, an, an individual, if we think maybe as, as Americans, there's some of those various stories, you know, Johnny Appleseed or, or George Washington or, or Harriet Tubman. Other times the stories are of group conflicts, uh, the, the North versus the South, or of uniting conflict like the World War II effort. These shared stories impact our understanding of the families we're in, the groups we belong to, the places we call home. And of course, that's true for our faith as well. You and I will pass down a set of stories to the next generation. It just depends on whether or not we realize we are passing down a particular story. A as I've thought about this, I'll just acknowledge uh, for an 8 a.m. class, this will be a little bit different. You know, it would be, it's, it's my pastoral inclination to want to devotionalize everything right now. And I think that some of what we're going to work through may feel a little bit more like, uh, like a lecture, even though uh, at, at heart I'm not necessarily an academic. But when we think about what we're going to pass down, I started reflecting on this, and I started thinking about sort of the framework. And so to begin, I want to give you a simple kind of four-piece framework of the kind of faith stories that we share. And the first is the one that we disciple each other in the most. That is the global story of God and his people. And so part of, part of what we do as the people, and especially as people of the book, is to go back to the story that God has written and to make sure that the next generation understands the larger big picture story that they're a part of. Side note, does anybody remember uh, the, uh, the, Zonder, the Zondervan's The Story Bible and kind of year-long program? Show of hands real quick if anybody, yeah. And, and show of hands, not, not just if you knew about it, but if your church actually used it. So yeah, a few, few hands out there. That was one example of, okay, let's make sure we understand we're part of a larger story, not just necessarily a, a set of values or a list of do's and don'ts. Now, from a biblical, I mean, this is about the restoration movement, so I felt like I needed a Bible verse for as many things as I could find. 
So, so the, the classic biblical example of failing to hand off the, the global story would be Judges 2.10. After Joshua's death, that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. And another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor, read those words, what he had done for Israel. So it wasn't just that they lost the relationship, it was that they lost the plot of what God was up to. It's not just that there was a God, but that this was a God who had revealed his nature in particular activities to rescue this people group out of Egypt, to, to carry them through the wilderness despite the many times that they didn't believe him or claim the promised land, the first go-around, the way that they should have, and yet there's a generation that, that grows up that doesn't know that story. Now, this class is not intended to address the fact that there are, there are uh, real, real challenges with making sure that the next generation does not grow up uh, biblically illiterate and misunderstanding what it means to be in the way of Jesus and to be part of the story of God redeeming the world and God working through his people and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's not the class we're going to do, but that is at first, uh, at first, uh, first part of the framework, the one of the stories that we hand down. Now, uh, to, to make this, to, to kind of go from, from, the, from the big to the more particular, all of us pass down a personal story. This is the story of, of you coming to faith in Christ, the person who, who shared their faith with you, the people previously that, that influenced you. Uh, from a biblical standpoint, obviously we're going to 2 Timothy 1.5 when Paul says, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul, at the beginning of this particular epistle, wants to call back to mind for Timothy this personal story he has. Now, let me just pause for a second and say, I, I think there are times where we criminally undervalue what it means to hand down our personal story to the next generation. Just if the, the teenager uh, who maybe is in your family, do, do, they know, do they know how their grandparent came to faith in Christ? You know, so sometimes you'll, you'll hear people reference like, oh man, all it takes is a couple generations and then they, they forget their names. And part of me goes, yeah, well that's happening because we have no story that would connect it with that name. They're just, they're just a, a, a placeholder on the family tree. But when we hand stories to the next generation, we give them something to carry forward, something that has a sense of identity, a sense of value that's connected to the, the person that they're related to. And so, uh, you know, even right here, I would, just, I would just say, when you think about the people who are in the next generation in your life, what is the personal, are, are we making them aware that they are inheriting a personal story, the story of their, their, their parents, their grandparents? What are some of those things that are unique to, to that, that family, to that person? Because that's part of what's beautiful about those personal stories is that they become part of the testimony we get to share of what God's been up to before us and yet intimately connected to us. The third framework is one that probably gets, gets shared less but is definitely worth mentioning and that is the, it's in between the personal and the global and that's the congregational 
story. Now, from a biblical standpoint, the story, the story of a particular congregation, a particular group locally of followers of Jesus, uh, one of the best examples, uh, I think, is in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, and he begins to kind of retell their story. He talks about the fact they become, the, the way that they receive Christ through the, the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of persecution and suffering, was beca- they became a model to others. And so verse 8 says that the Lord's message rang out from you, Thessalonian church, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And he, he, he says what people tell, some of the story of this particular congregation They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, for our churches, I think this is this is, again, can be sometimes one of those blind spots. It's funny. You know who's who's actually maybe the best at telling the congregational story? It's usually church planters. Think about it. When when church planners are are beginning to give their report or beginning to share what God's up to, so often you hear the origin story. Boy, six years ago we started in a living room and there were just 12 of us, you know, sitting around around our living room praying about how we could reach this city. And then we, we went to that middle school auditorium and we were there for a couple years. And man, by God's grace, we started to, you know, raise enough money to get into our own building. There's a congregational story. And it's funny, why do you have to be a young, brand new church to realize that there's value to this? But actually, there's, there's great value in passing on and understanding what is the story of the group that I am spiritually most intimately connected with, meeting with most regularly. So I'll give you an example from, uh, from the church that, uh, that I've been at for eight and a half years. When, when we showed up at at uh, uh, the Hills Church uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, you know, it had a long history. Uh, it, 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 had, it had a name previously, Richland Hills Church of Christ, and, and it had a history of starting in a little, little school. And I happened to get on staff right around when uh, we hit the 60th anniversary uh, of, uh, of the church. And, and so I got to sit down uh, as, as part of my, my job at the time and, and help conduct interviews with a bunch of our elders. And it was like a moment I wasn't prepared for, where all of a sudden they just started, started sharing all of these different congregational stories, moments, pivotal moments in the history of our church that I didn't, I didn't know anything about. But as a brand new person on staff, new, new to Texas, new to the church, hardly knew anybody, all of a sudden I felt intimately connected with a bigger story of what God had been up to. There's one particular moment in... Um, it was uh, the, the 80s, and, um, and, and there was a huge financial crisis for the church. I mean, it was in, it was in the papers, and, and there, there, was, there was a loan, and, and it looked like there were some, some things that were going to default. And I mean, it was a, it was a bad situation, and it, it involved a couple of eld- uh, elders needing to go, and, and as they spoke with the bank, like really, really kind of stick their neck out to, to help things uh, uh, get, get, kind of get through that situation. But in the midst of that, one of the biggest crises was that they, they weren't sure they were going to be able to fund all the missionaries. And there, there was a particular uh, meeting amongst the elders where they asserted and then communicated to the church, whatever happens, we are not going to bring a single missionary home. And they made this big public kind of statement and sacrifice and by God's grace got through that season not having to send any more, any, not having to bring any missionaries home or, or take or, or lessen support to those 
those who were spreading the gospel around the world. And I'll tell you that all, you know, you know, coming up on four decades later, that there is a heartbeat in our church of missions in part because that, that story, it may not be known by everybody in our church, but there are, there are people in our church, people on our staff, people on our missions committee that carry that congregational legacy and story. Now, this, uh, this is not called restor- rest, uh, congregation for a new generation. It's called restoration for a new generation. And so you can see that, that in this, in this uh, threefold framework, we're really missing a story. And that is what I, th- I mean, we're non-denominational, so I decided to be nice and call this the tribal story. Admittedly, I'd call it the denominational story otherwise. But the question is, among our tribe, it is the tribal story that has been left largely on the shelf and widely unexamined. So it's just a few weeks ago um, that uh, I, got, uh, I got an email from, uh, from somebody in, uh, on, on our staff. They were making an announcement um, about, uh, about the library uh, in our church. We're, we're about to do a renovation in one of our buildings, and it's, it's our oldest building, and, uh, and there, there's a, an, a, a meeting room that is called the library. Now, I don't know if you can call six bookshelves a library, but for a long time we have. And, uh, and the, the announcement was, because of the renovation, we need, to, we need to move these books, but we've really realized we're not using this library, and so we're going to, we're going to just donate these books. So come look, take whatever you want, everything else is going to be given away. And so I, I, I went in there and, and perused. I'm, uh, I'm a, a, a book, uh, book lover at heart. And so I'm, I'm walking and I'm looking at all these books that are about to be, you know, uh, just orphans. And I'm like, I, I, it's, 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 it's like the person who loves puppies going to the, to, uh, um, you know, to the pound is how I felt just walking around. But then I saw the shelf and the shelf said church history. Now, there were, there were, it was just a lone shelf with a, a small a smattering of books, and there were one or two that were kind of global church history books, but there was this little collection that were all about the restoration movement. And some of them were, were, were older, things that I, I hadn't read, didn't know were published, things I wasn't aware of. Um, well, I, I, I grabbed like almost the whole stack and, and took, it, took it to my office. And that has become a little bit of a, a working picture for me of, of some of what, where we are right now with the history of the restoration movement. It is, it is a history that has been recorded, that has been preserved. And at the same time, it's a history that has long sat on the shelf and been pretty, pretty untold or neglected. And the question is, what is going to happen now? Is it going to be donated to kind of global church history, just kind of basic American Christianity, collective memory, something for, for people who are only church, church history majors who, who really specialize in American church history? Is, is it a history that, that is going to be not just donated, but kind of, kind of cast aside and say, you know what, we don't really use or need this anymore? Or is it a history, a story that is going to be rediscovered? And as a dad, I've realized, man, that, uh, that depends in part on me and in part on you. 
The restoration movement has another name. I'm guessing that many of you know. What is the other name for this movement? You can answer out loud. Stone Campbell Movement. That's right. Stone and Campbell are two names of key leaders in this, uh, this movement of the American church. Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell. This shorthand for our movement draws from two historical figures pointing to a shared past and a shared story. But guess what? If you told uh, a teenager that they were part of the Stone Campbell movement in your church, do you think they would know that? And yeah, do, do, they, do you think they'd know that Stone and Campbell are, are names of, of people, of leaders? And so, so let, me, let me just be honest. When, um, when I started prepping for this class, I came in with a wrong presupposition. I thought that it was uh, maybe part of my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation that had kind of, they had inherited our congregational story, but had decided this isn't worth sharing and had failed to hand it off to the next generation. And then when I started talking with my dad, I realized that he was not raised with this congregational story. That it wasn't until he was more of an adult that he started studying and learning more about, about uh, 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 not just about Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, but about, uh, about Abner Jones and Elias Smith and, 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 and these other leaders and their influence in some of the early days of the Restoration Movement. And so I realized that, that the way we've lived, historically speaking, in terms of shared memory, at best, the story of the Stone Campbell movement was vaguely referenced over the last several generations. And at worst, it was as if Acts 2 happened and then there were, after 2,000 years of denominational dark ages, the churches of Christ showed up. So I want to bring you this, this hypothesis. And I'm more than open to pushback or alternative perspectives. Maybe not in the middle of this class, but certainly right after. And I'm going to start with this broad premise. By and large, and for several generations, the churches of Christ failed to pass on a shared story. What they handed down was a way of doing church, a set of defining values, and a why we're this way talking points. So our way of doing church, well, we baptize by immersion, we take communion every week, we preach from the Bible, and come while we stand and sing. And when we say sing, we mean singing without instruments. I mean, that was a little bit of how we did church. Our Church of Christ defining values were an emphasis on the word. We are, no one would debate, people of the book. Now that's not unique to our movement, but it is defining for us. And a lot of our other defining values come from scripture and our interpretation of scripture, governance structures led by elders, gender roles, worship style, the value of family and fellowship, a passion for reaching the lost. Again, if you listed those out, there's a lot of other Christian movements that are cooking the same kind of ecclesiological chili. But if you go to a chili cook-off, you're going to taste a lot of different flavors, right? And we had our own kind of Church of Christ spice to all of that. And depending on the Church of Christ you grew up in, you might say we put a little legalistic heat on our church chili. Or you might say we did everything so decently and in order that we stuck to the recipe on the can. With our why we're this way talking, yes, that was an extended chili joke. Why, with our why we're this way talking points, we basically had a verse for everything, right? 
Why do you baptize like that? Acts 2.38. Why do you have elders? Go to Titus 1. Why don't you let women preach? Well, Paul said, and so on. So that's what we were given. That's certainly, to be more candid, that's certainly what my generation was given. A way of doing church, our defining values, our very own church chili recipe, and talking points for why we're this way. But at the same time that we were handed this, we were also riding a, 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 a larger a multi-decade wave of what many called the grace movement. When voices like Jimmy Allen and Lynn Anderson and others fought back against the legalism and sectarianism that plagued a lot of our churches. And as this grace-based message spread, it had unintended consequences. Because one of the defining marks of the churches of Christ for a long time, according to uh, historian Richard Hughes, it was about 100 years that there was a sense that not only are we restoring the one true church, but that means if you're going if, if to get saved, you need to be part of the one true church. Sub, subtext is, if you're not with us, you're going to hell. And you can have autonomous congregations and keep the tribe together with a message like that. Because everybody wants to go to heaven. But once grace shows up, well, let's ask the question this way. What happens when you raise a generation with a set of distinctives that used to be absolutely necessary or you might go to hell? And instead, you raise them in the way of grace with a more inclusive way of doing church and a broader view of the kingdom. What happens is I can count on one hand the number of youth group kids I grew up with who are still attending a church of Christ. Now, I could give you a lot more names of people I grew up with who are still followers of Jesus. But we were discipled into the kingdom, but out of the movement. Now, my first experience venturing outside our movement for weekly worship was in college. I started looking around for churches, and part of my criteria was that the church could not be named after the road it was on or the town it was in. After being at Providence Road Church of Christ for a long time, I was ready for a different, different kind of church name, which basically meant I was looking for a different type of non-denominational church, the kind with a band. Well, the one that I showed up at, uh, they were in between ministers at the time. I didn't know a lot uh, about kind of their, their theological background. And all of a sudden, the next, uh, next uh, minister came in, and he happened to be a, a very reformed guy. Uh, he, uh, his name is Sam, Dr. Sam Storms, used to teach at Wheaton, and he was a great preacher, uh, godly man, uh, but he was, uh, he was very reformed. He, he was buddies with John Piper, and, uh, and so all of a sudden I found myself kind of being exposed to some of uh, the reformed movement, um, uh, you know, unsuspectingly. And I started noticing that in a bunch of these sermons, it was like you, you, you couldn't get hardly get through a sermon without... Martin Luther being quoted, or John Calvin. If it wasn't one of them, it was Jonathan Edwards. If it wasn't that, it was a story about Spurgeon. It, 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 was like, it was like there was just all of these references tied to this particular movement. Every fall, there was some reference to the Reformation event of the 95 Theses nailed to the door. Uh, the, the, it, was, it was interesting that this particular group had a very shared story. And what I noticed was that their shared story fused who they were with what they believed. It was a story that had been retold often, and it was inherited afresh with each gener generation. Now, this is not just true of the Reformed community. In fact, it's far more true for other religious communities around the world, Jews, Muslims, Catholic, and Orthodox churches, Mormons, and many others. But 
as a college student, I'm just getting my first glimpse of this. And so in light of all of that, this, this uh, you've been patient, kind of listen through this framework so far. And yet, probably you're wondering, okay, but, but what is the actual story that you want to, to hand to your, your two kids, Taylor? What's the story you want to tell? And before I, before I tell you that story, I want to make sure you understand something. The story that I want to hand down is not history, but collective memory. What do I mean by that? Well, history are the actual events, the facts, the detailed account as best we know how it really took place. But collective memory is, that is the, the memory of a group of people passed to the next generation. Collective memories are shared representations of a group's past based on a common identity. Put more simply, co collective memory isn't necessarily exactly how it happened, but it's maybe how we experienced it or how we see it now. So uh, an example of this, uh, I'm, I'm an NBA fan, and um, you know, you've got Michael Jordan uh, in, uh, in the finals, and it's a critical game five, and he is sick. And he has this incredible flu game that it, it's later talked about. I mean, it has to be carried off the court. Now, the, the, the history of the flu game would be exactly how many, how many points did he score? 38. You know, how, how, how many minutes did he play? What were his stats? Uh, if, if you really want to get into the history, then in the documentary, documentary, The Last Dance, he was delivered a pizza. And so he was actually, it wasn't the flu game. It was the bad pizza game. But wh whatever it is. But the collective memory is this heroic moment of, one guy mustering all his will to carry his team to victory. Now, for our restoration movement, I didn't prepare this class to tell you that all of us need to be church history experts of the restoration <laughs> movement. But to consider what is the collective memory, what is the story, as I've reflected on it, some of what I want to tell my kids is that the story of the tribe that they're part of begins on the heels of revival sweeping across America. That our story is still part of a bigger story of what God was doing. And two men, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell, had started separate movements that were aiming for the same thing. The unity of all believers through the renewal, restoration of the church. Specifically, the restoration of the early church. They dreamed of a union of all believers and pushed back against denominational divisions. And they joined in their work, which began the Stone Campbell movement. And part of what I want my kids to know is that this happened despite plenty of differences, especially between these two. Stone, as historians tell it, lived much of his life in poverty. Campbell died an extraordinarily wealthy man. Stone wasn't much of an academic, and a lot of the pastors who trained under him were pretty undereducated. Campbell, on the other hand, founded his own university. Stone was a fiery preacher with a charismatic flair. Campbell was a tactical lawyer who credited the Holy Spirit with inspiring the Bible, but not much else. That, that little, that, that little uh, back and forth explains in part why churches of Christ, sometimes uh, church of Christ, members of the church of Christ will call themselves Campbellites, but I have never heard a church of Christ member call themselves a stoner. It's just, 
It's just the reality of, of the way that the influence of the systemic mind of Alexander Campbell, if we can just systematize this and get the rules and put it all in place. Now that's, that's how our movement began, forged in the fires of revival, willing to overlook differences for the sake of unity, dreaming of the church God intended made manifest on earth. They were people of the book, people who did their utmost to understand and obey what God had instructed in the New Testament. And so they baptized for the forgiveness of sins, just like Peter said. They took communion on the first day of the week, just like Paul told the Corinthians. But along with the passion and idealism of the movement's beginning, I want my kids to learn from the missteps as well. Mistakes can be redeemed when they become warnings for future generations. Alexander Campbell was a lawyer who literally compared the Bible to the Constitution. For him, it was a legal document as much as it was a theological document. It was a divine rule book. Seriously, Alexander Campbell put the legal in legalism, I promise. And it is not hard to see how our movement drifted in that direction. Despite being a movement with unity as one of its central goals, our tribe got really good at division, at disfellowshipping, at calling other people out. There, uh, one of our, our restoration movement publications back in the day was called the Heretic Direct Detector. That is a real publication. Someday I hope to tell my kids about being in college and driving up to meet my dad at the Tulsa International Soul Winning Workshop. The year was 2006. Max Lucado was preaching along with a Christian church pastor named Bob Russell. The amphitheater was packed and the singing was powerful. And that night, another story from our tribe was told. For me, this was, a, this was a, a watershed moment because I felt like it was one of the, the first times that I was hearing some of the tribal story with such a big group. A hundred years before, in 1906, the U.S. Census recognized a split in the restoration movement between the Churches of Christ and the uh, Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church. They made categories for the Christian Church and the Churches of Christ. The unity movement had failed, at least in the unity part. And a hundred years later, there was a new movement to heal and embrace each other as restoration families. That was... That's a night I'm, I'm not going to forget. It's a night that fuses some of my personal story with the tribal story I want my kids to understand. Because it was a moment when I realized I was part of a bigger story. And this was a story that in a way belonged in part to me. I want my kids to hear those stories. And... And I, I was really encouraged seeing on some of the program, you may have noticed that, that uh, later today and I think also tomorrow, there's a couple of other classes that are trying to tell some of these stories, try, trying to give us a, a glimpse into the, the past, that for uh, often an ahistorical movement, um, or maybe at our worst, an anti-historical movement, uh, that, there, that there's these, these great opportunities to hear, especially from people who maybe have uh, better, uh, better accreditation than me, to be able to to share and tell some of these stories from our restoration past. I think Mike Cope is doing one later that's on the story of the Churches of Christ, and, um, and I'm trying to remember what the other one, uh, other one was. I think it's with John Mark Hicks and a couple of others who are looking at photos inside the restoration movement and telling the story of those photos. So worth checking out. 
but I want my kids to hear these stories. And yet to all of that, one might offer a big, fat, so what? I was talking with uh, a man in our church. He's a dad. He grew up Church of Christ. And I, I was telling him of some of what I was going to share this morning. And, and as, I, as I kept sharing, I see his, his brow was furrowing a little bit more each as, as I went on. And he asked this question. What is the benefit to your kid's heart that they know this story? And I thought that was a great question. Why is it worth telling? Well, for one, it gives my children the benefit of hearing shared memory instead of inheriting willful amnesia. I want my kids to know that they are part of something God has been doing in this little corner of the kingdom that is far bigger than they realize. I want them to know that what they are a part of is more than a set of convictions or a particular worship style. I want them to know that the story they're a part of is as big as the kingdom of God and as personal as their great-grandfather and grandmother T.J. and Mildred Walling. I want their minds to have wisdom that is informed primarily by God's word, but also partially by an understanding of history. I want them to have learned parts of the story that would help them in the future root out legalism. I want them to learn parts of the story that keep them from being surprised when old cycles rear their head in a faith community. I want them to be aware of the past so that they can be wise in the present and watchful for the future. Now, I could be wrong about what I'm going to say next, and everything about the future is under the banner of the Lord's will. But I anticipate a world in which the forms of church that have been popularized and commodified in the modern West are not going to be the forms that are most effective or beneficial for the next couple generations. And I want them to have learned from the story they are joining for how to navigate change and to let go of man-made traditions well. I want them to carry an inheritance that is both timeless in the ancient faith and timely for equipping them to meet their moment in history as God empowers them. So my kids may never attend a church of Christ as adults. And honestly, that's okay. My goal is not that they carry the brand of Church of Christ. My desire is that carrying the story forward helps them grow as followers of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, which is part of what we'll talk more about tomorrow and how, how, how does the Holy Spirit play into this future for the next generation. And among those stories, I do want to share one, one personal story that I want to hand down to them. I want to show you, uh, this is a photo that somebody brought to me uh, at my church uh, a couple years ago. Said that it was from a, a gathering of, uh, I think, mainly California uh, uh, ministers. I don't know if this was a, a, a tent meeting or, or some other kind of gathering. But in the bottom right-hand corner is my grandfather, T.J. Walling. Thomas Jefferson Walling. It's a good American name right there. Now, I was close to my grandmother, uh, but my, my grandfather uh, died. He had a brain tumor, and it was when my dad was in college, so uh, decades before I was born. And his name was Tom, but he often went by TJ. TJ worked uh, on a ranch 
and in Orange Grove, owned by a man named Lee Nickerson. Mr. Nickerson didn't have a son. Uh, he had some daughters, but he didn't have a son. And, and you know, over time, TJ became kind of the go-to for just about anything that Mr. Nickerson needed, becoming like a son to him. My, my grandpa eventually became the foreman of the Orange Grove. But when my grandfather came to faith, he, he felt a call to ministry. There were, there, there were people around him who started saying, you know, Tom, you've, 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 you've got a gift. This is something that you should step into. And TJ went back to Mr. Nickerson. He said, I, I've, I've, I've got to go. I know this is what God wants me to do. And I found out just a few years ago that when my grandfather felt this call to ministry, that Mr. Nickerson actually tried to convince him to stay and said, you know what, if you just, 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 why don't you just part-time it? Why don't you just kind of be a, you know, like, like bivocational? So you just preach on the weekend, work the grove during the week, and to sweeten the offer, Mr. Nickerson said that he would build my grandfather a new house and set him up with around seven acres of property from the grove. Basically, he was offering to, 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 to help my grandfather have something sustainable and be set for life. And as a 28-year-old husband with two kids like me and a middle school education, my grandfather turned it down and went into full-time ministry. I got curious and I looked up the estimated value of seven acres of real estate in Southern California. I almost threw up. But what my grandfather handed down to me was so much more valuable than any piece of land. He helped hand down the story of God redeeming the world. And my grandfather's choice has become a lasting and treasured story that I want to give my kids. So my encouragement to you is to reflect on to pray, and to be intentional about what stories are you handing down. Man, for some of those, that, that, the, those teenagers in your life who are old enough to kind of hear and begin to process the story, they may not overtly seem grateful or interested, but later, late, later these may become treasures for them because they realize they don't have to be Oh, they don't have to be spiritual orphans who wonder, where am I from? Why am I here? Why is our church like this? And the thing I, I most want you to hear is that I think that part of the, the value of handing down a story is that it allows the next generation to inherit that and continue to adapt and change without feeling like we're fighting all of the previous Things that weren't stories, but were <laughs> the church chili recipe. Because as we've seen, it's not just for the next, this isn't just happening for the next generation. This is already happening in our generation. It's already happening before our eyes. And so what I want my kids to understand about what it means to be Church of Christ won't initially be found Alexander Campbell style in, in a list of uh, COC laws. But I want it to be found in a narrative that's given to them that they can walk forward with hand in hand with God and the Holy Spirit and the church that they're part of.
And so, as we conclude, I know that, that this has uh, kind of gotten gone in a lot of directions, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play to my pastoral in- instincts, and I do want to have a moment of devotion as we finish. I was reflecting there's so many places in Scripture where we can find inc- confidence and encouragement that God is at work in each and every moment in history and generation. I thought about uh, Acts 17 when, when Paul is preaching and says that, that, that God not only kind of set the boundaries, but he, he set the times and places. And so God is not surprised by what the next generation will have to endure or walk into. But then I, I, I thought about this beautiful hope and promise in Psalm 102. It's at the end of the psalm. And if you, uh, if you look at this later, Psalm 102 is actually, it begins, and it is a lament. Uh, a lament that's being poured out by someone who has grown weak. It's an interesting kind of subtitle for the psalm. It's one of the only psalms that, that doesn't say who wrote it or what it is, but says, who is this for? Who's this prayer for? And in some ways, as a movement, we're seeing our numbers, statistically speaking, seem to dwindle. We're seeing people who come to faith in Christ but then leave our churches to go somewhere else. And in some ways, maybe part of this prayer is appropriate for us. The end of the psalm says, Your years go on through all generations. Speaking to God. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. Will you read these these next words with me? But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. God, this is our prayer. That more than being part of a particular movement in one corner of the world, in one part of your kingdom, our prayer, our prayer of renewal and restoration for the next generation is that they would live in your presence, that they would be established before you. God, we we confess our desire to want to control that outcome. And we hold before you open-handed our prayers and our supplications for the next generation. Asking wholeheartedly that you help them become people of renewal. People with a spirit of unity. And most importantly, people who know you and who know Jesus. And in your hands, they can be most trusted. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here. God bless.
Good morning. This feels so auspicious up here. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's just good to be with family and friends here at Harbor. I can't walk across campus without having those, hey, how are you? Whoa, look at that. Hey, look, he's still alive. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it, is a, it is a blessing. I'm thankful to Mike Cope and the team that works with him so hard um, to, to make Harbor happen, to help it to be the, the blessing to all of us uh, that it is. And I also want to recognize our university that continues to say this is important for the church. But the folks that really make Harbor happen are y'all. Uh, it'd be pretty lonely in here, in an empty building or, or down in the field house. So I hope you take time to encourage uh, other folks as you see them. Uh, my goal for this week is to make it a, uh, a negative-free zone. Now, that mean, doesn't mean we can't pray with each other, but sometimes we just get so in the mood of, oh boy, um, is there anybody th th here who would confess to maybe over the last couple of years gotten a little more gripey? Can I, can I, can I get a show? Can we? All right. I'm going to sing just as I am and you can come right down, uh, but I'll be there ahead of you because it is so easy to fall into moments of frustration. And uh, I used to serve with a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as a way of kind of getting into where we're heading, um, the eldership would begin the meetings with something that they simply called prayer request. And so there were 12 elders there at the time I was first working with them. And we would start around the circle as each meeting began, and each person would share. Now, typically, what they were sharing was a brief story. Maybe it was just two or three sentences. You know, Elizabeth Johnston's cancer has come back, and her husband just tore up about it, and the kids are trying to decide how to help their mom with what's next. Can we pray for them? Somebody else would say, oh, the Stevens have decided they're, they're leaving. They're going to go down to Central because they just feel like it's a better fit for the etc., etc. And we would go around the circle. Bob has lost his job. Susan's parents are divorcing, and she's trying to help them negotiate that. A family lost a baby while it was still in the mom's womb. And by the time we get through 12 guys uh, telling two or three of those kind of stories each, you can imagine what the joyous feeling in the room was and how ready we were to lean into the future and, you know, and, and get excited about what was next. Uh, of course, unfortunately, it was pretty much the opposite. We all were saying, Lord, come quickly. Uh, this is just the pain, the agony. Please don't hear me say that those painful stories aren't important. But I realized as I shared with them that I found myself less and less feeling capable, uh, feeling uh, able and more feeling overwhelmed. Can I get a oh yeah from anybody who understands that when you share those things? And so we started a new tradition. Uh, I said, I'm, I want to ask you when we come into our meeting, if we could to start with what we'd call a good God moment. Just a moment of stopping and saying, what is something good that God has done in the lives of somebody maybe in your flock as our congregation was divided up so the elders could be more attuned to the needs of the, quote, flock by having a, a smaller set of people. Uh, we had, I don't know, 800 or 900 in the congregation, and so they'd have 100 
or so that they were, or fewer actually, that they were kind of connecting to. Well, the next meeting came around and we started around and one of them said, oh, I, I for, I'm sorry, I forgot we were doing this. Uh, and I said, that, that's okay, that's all right, it will go to the next one. And the next one said, you know, well, I tell you what, uh, remember Tommy Johnson who had had such a difficulty with uh, drugs? He has made a huge turnaround. I was just talking to his mom and she asked us to praise God for that, that he has been able to walk away from that and da 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 And we all were like, wow, that's awesome. And, and, and three or four more others, you know, had stories. And one of them said, I don't, I don't have anything. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm sure you will by the next meeting. I said, here's what I'd ask you to do. Start asking people for good stories. Start asking people for something we can praise God for. Well, when the next meeting came around, that fellow who said, oh, I didn't get my homework done, he was there. So I want to go first. I've got three. And, 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 and our elders began to become good news collectors. Now, is there anybody here who has served as an elder before in a, in a church who would confess it in a room of this nature? All right. Being an elder often feels like working for the DMV. People only come to see you when they have a problem. And they will corner you or grab you and say, hey, you know, this, I didn't like this, or why are we doing this? But as our shepherds became, became people who were gathering good news, people started going to them to say, hey, I've got a good, a good God story for you. I've got a good God story for you. Stories have great power. And the type of stories that we collect, the type of stories that we repeat, their power is multiplied. Now, I know the young man, I'm forgetting the name of the fellow who was speaking here right before, if any of you were in the class. Taylor and I talked about the fact that uh, he was talking about stories today, and my uh, series for today and tomorrow is all about stories, the parables of Jesus. So uh, we, we shared a little bit, and I know some of the things that he shared with you. We're going to come at it from a different direction, but there is an, an overlap here. And the overlap is in the power of story. If I can invite you to a bit of homework, while you're here at Harbor, be a good God storyteller and a good God story collector. In fact, let's just practice for a moment. I want you just to tell a two or three sentence story to somebody behind you, in front of you, next to you, that is something good that God has done in your life or somebody else's. Now, let me give you a moment to think of something, because surely all of us have something good we can tell, right? My dad used to say back in the days of digital clocks, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So there's something that you could say, I'll explain it to the young ones later, there is something that you could say, surely that is something good God has done. So just let's take a moment of practicing both sharing and remembering. On your mark, get set, go. Just take a second. Do that right now. Turn around to somebody. If there's not somebody close, introduce yourself to somebody. Okay, all right.
Oh, I owe you a story, is that it? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My son is at two number one. Shut and up. He's still in the music business. Wow. Which the first song that was brilliant. Oh. <laughs> what were his two? Uh, Jimmy Allen. Uh, Every River Home. That's still one of the most played songs on the. Uh, it's called Jimmy Allen. Every River Home. Everywhere but on. Okay. All right. Well, that is. Wow. Wow. Good to see you too. Does Paul still remember your name? No. <laughs> All right, okay. Hey, 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 enough of that positive encouragement. We've had all that we can handle now. Let's get back to those of you who heard Brother Preacher last night. The church is falling apart. Uh, two quick questions. One, how did it feel to hear a good news story? Just shout out some words. How did it feel to hear it? Good, great. Strengthening encouraging positive well awesome by the way isn't that how we'd like to describe how people would feel when they come to our congregations so maybe we need a little uh, program in the lobby right <laughs> of good storytellers second how did it feel to tell something good to somebody else good made you smile do what heartwarming it felt good to tell it now let me take you over to the Keck Science Center and tell you what the folks in the brain research says. They say that the more often we repeat a story, it begins to be stored in our brain. It's, it's almost like a little path in the woods. The first time you, you walk it, if you were, say, you over on Grandpa's farm and there was a little path there and the weeds had begun to grow, every time you walk it, you trample down a few more weeds, you knock back a few more of the branches and it becomes easier and easier to go down it every time we tell a story our brains store that story anew in fact you can actually take a lie detector test and if you've told a certain story about your family say enough times and your spouse says it wasn't christmas it was thanksgiving no, 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 it was, it was Thanksgiving. You can take a lie detector test and pass it saying it was Christmas when it actually was Thanksgiving because your brain, every time you tell the story, it says, okay, 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 that's important, okay. And it moves it to the top of the file. Now, all of us who have come to a certain place in life know what it's like to look in the files to try and find something, a name, sometimes a word sometimes a person sometimes one of your grandkids and you're just you know you're just just trying to find it and pull it out every time you tell a positive story your brain is storing that and making it easier for you to tell again unfortunately every time you tell a different kind of story every time you tell that i tell you i'm just so sick of story Every time you tell that story of the way that person, it makes that story rise to the top as well. So thanks to 
some of the brain researchers who are helping us to understand why stories have such power. I want to tell you two things about me and my wife, and then two things about Jesus, and then I want to give you a lens that maybe we can use over the next two days to think about the power of Christ's story, Christ's stories, and how they might not only bless us, but give us a clear vision of the love of God. Let's take a moment in prayer. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the way you care for us. Thank you for the power of stories and for how they enrich and sweeten our lives. God, for the next couple of mornings, I, I ask your blessings on Taylor as he shares about a vision of the restoration story and the restoration spirit. God, I'm, I'm so thankful not only for him, but for all the speakers and teachers uh, who are here, the panelists, our keynotes. And Father, for all these good brothers and sisters who've come, some of them a long, long way, just to be encouraged, may we be good storytellers and receivers this week. And come, Lord Jesus, for that is a story we have told and told and told and can't wait for it to be something we live out. And in the name of Jesus, we all pray and say, amen. Okay, two things about me and my wife. First off, I love a good story. I actually teach a class here at Pepperdine for freshmen called The Power of Story. I love stories, well, for a lot of reasons. My dad told stories. But I love stories because of the way they capture people's attention. Stories are primal. If you've got to share something with someone that you want them to remember, there are two basic ways we can go about that. We can do it by sharing a list. You know, here are the things you need to do. Or here are the things you need to remember. Or we can manage to put it to them in a story. Now, when you put it to somebody in a story, it is, as the science folk tell us, more easy to retrieve than a list. Why? It's part of the way we think about life. It's also part of the way we're built, the way I think God designed the system. Lists are not natural to us. We have to work at it. We have to remember. You know why there's seven numbers in a phone number? Because a bunch of years ago they did research and said people can remember seven. But you get to eight and nine, it starts falling off the page. Which is why now that we have to remember the area code as well, Praise God for cell phones, right? We don't know anybody's number. We just know their name and hit the button. And we talk to students about uh, when they go in for an uh, interview. Uh, I tell them, everybody when, is going to get this softball question. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What are most students, unfortunately, going to do? Well, I was the uh, junior high. Uh, I was the head of my softball team, and I was the president of my class in my sophomore year in high school. And I won the uh, uh, award for uh, most improved student in basketball. And, 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 and. And it all just flows off the back and right out of the brain of the interviewer. But if you have a good story about yourself, about your life, even if it's a, 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 a story you think, well, I don't know if this really matters, I'm telling you. As they're going back through those pages, they're not going to remember, but they're going to see your name and go, this was the guy who raised the llama, right? It was, wasn't this that guy? He was, we need to bring him back because the story will stick. 
stories are Velcro-covered. They are Velcro-covered because we not only hear them, we see them. When I told you about that elders meeting a minute ago, some of you went there in your head. You could see those gentlemen sitting around that table. And because of that, that story is much more likely to be remembered than any list of principles or abstract things that I might share with you. Okay, I, I could go a long way on stories, but let me just say, if you want to teach your grandchildren, stories. Stories are remembered, and also, stories are easy to pass on. All the things my grandma taught me, uh, I, I, it'd be hard for me to say, well, let's see, what were they? But when she told the story about sitting in the back of a wagon and holding a mandolin, when her family was traveling from one little town in Texas to another, she was raised in a foreign country, uh, when Texas, from one, one little town to another, and how her family, when they arrived at the town, uh, th th for somehow they got called the OK Singers, and uh, they'd start the shout, the OK Singers are here, the OK Singers are here. And her mom always wanted her to start playing the mandolin so that as they came into town, they'd come in with music. It's been 60 plus years since the first time I heard that story. But I can still see that wagon, can't you? And that little girl on the back playing that mandolin. She taught me a lot about first impressions. She taught me a lot about the power of joy in music. All through just a, a story. Now the good news is that story is so easy for me to carry. I can tell that to my kids and to my grandkids. In fact, some would suggest, here's a rather more bellicose way of talking about it, stories are like sticky smart bombs with handles for easy carrying. When somebody puts a story in your mind, it sticks. And stories have a way of bouncing back right at the right time. Mom gives the keys to the kid for the first time, or dad does. But before they do, mom says, I want you to know that a lady I know had a son who the first time he drove his brother to school, they ran a stop sign. And a fella coming the other way, wasn't looking up, hit him, killed them both. I love you, and I love your brother. She could have said, be careful, be careful. Yeah, mom, I know. Be careful. Watch for the time. Yeah, I know, mom. But what do you think that boy was thinking about first time he pulled up to a stop sign? I'm not going to pull out there and be like, that story exploded in his head. And when his brother said, man, you're driving so slow. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> mom knows this person that. And the story went down through the ages in the family. That's why movies are so powerful for us. I love stories. Second thing I need to tell you is my wife loves love stories. How do I know this? Because I have sat on the couch during COVID <laughs> and said, baby, you want to watch something? Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw this. Go for it. And off to the Hallmark Channel <laughs> or one of the other channels, A&E or whatever we'd go. And I realized they're all the same movie. 
the elements of the story are not that different. And I could kind of predict the ending, and sure enough, that's how it would end. But my sweet wife was such a beautiful picture of being swept up into it. It was a lens for her into something much deeper. I, yeah, I can't help, help myself. Let me tell it fast. As a, as a younger man, when I was working at the church in Orange County, the Mission Viejo Church of Christ, I came home one night after an elders meeting and came in, and my wife was sitting on the couch. And um, it appeared she had been, she, I don't know whether she'd been hit or fallen, but both eyes black. And as a young husband, I'm baby, and she is weeping. She's got a blanket wrapped around her. Sweetheart, what, what happened? What's wrong? And she can't speak. This is the days before cell phones, so I'm, I'm about to, to you know, run to a landline. And she says, <laughs> and she points, and the TV's on. And she had it muted because it was a commercial. I said, what is it? And she wiped the mascara from under her eyes. <laughs> and she says, oh, this, oh, this show, it's just... And it comes back on, and there's a family, and there's a baby in ICU. And, and that baby's only got a few days to live, and, and they wanted this child for so long. And, she's, and I've realized this story has beaten my wife up. <laughs> and I said, baby, well... Is it over yet? No, it's only got about 15 minutes. I said, baby, maybe, maybe the baby gets better. Maybe there's a miracle. And she said, there's not. I said, there might be. She says, no, I saw this last year. <laughs> so I went over and I said, well, then let's turn it off. She said, don't you touch that. <laughs> Give me my 10 minutes. I just want to see the end. My wife loves love stories, stories about people who love each other, parents who love babies and, and moms who love dads and, and, and kids who love others because in her, way deep down inside, we are all still carrying the same little card from junior high school that says, do you like me? Check yes or no. Do you love me? Do you love me? Love is so deep within us. Jesus, of course, says it's the greatest commandment, to love God and love others. Now, that's about my wife and I. Now, two things about Jesus. Thing one, Jesus chose, chose stories over every other form to teach with. Matthew puts it this way. He did not say anything. Everybody say anything. He, oh, come on, like grandma. He did not say anything without using a parable. Now, okay, Matthew may be being a little bit of a hyperbole here, but what he's saying is Jesus taught. And if you just put out all the red letters of Jesus, you've got this one section in John in which there is a, quite a bit of teaching, but otherwise Jesus doesn't do stand-up lectures. Jesus tells stories. Okay, if Jesus tells stories, maybe, good idea for those of us who teach. Can I get a oh Yeah. The master teacher, the most quoted, written about, sung about, teacher in all of time. He loved stories. But the second thing I need you to know is that Jesus had a mission. In John chapter 17, he is in the garden. He is pouring out his heart to God. 
And in that prayer, he says something that reveals that he came to pull back the curtain between God and man so that we might truly know him. Listen to his words. Father, the time has come. Do we all know what time he's talking about? Yeah. He's not talking about closing time. He's not talking about quitting time. He's talking about crucifixion time. Father, the time's come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given to him. Now this is eternal life. Let's read these words together. That they may... Jesus' mission, yes, to die for us. But he could have done that in a much shorter period of time. Why then all of the stories... Jesus' mission was, again, to pull back the curtain between God and us so that we might truly know him. So he chooses to use stories to pull back the curtain between God and us. Then maybe it might be fun to look at the stories of Jesus through a particular lens. And here's, here's the lens. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. This really isn't a lens, this is just a reminder to me that Jesus' stories are not meant to be dissected, but they are meant to dwell. Can everybody just for a second recognize that we are a mechanistic world? How things work, take it apart, put it back together, autopsy it, divide it up, give me a chart. That wasn't the world that Jesus walked and talked and lived in. It doesn't mean it's a bad world. But it is a world that pulls us toward dissection instead of dwelling. Let the words of Christ, everybody say that word, would you? Dwell. It's a resting word. It's a come on in this house and sit down word. It's a be still word. Now I'm going to adjust scripture in a way I don't think is blasphemy. Let the stories of Christ dwell in you richly. How do I do that? Well, it's probably no shock that a mechanistic guy is going to think about four questions I can bring to it. But these questions are about dwelling, not dissecting. If you want to read a little something about the parables, there's a, uh, an, an author, a Jew, she's of Jewish background, named Amy Jill Levine, who writes a wonderful little book called Short Stories by Jesus. That was her little title for it, in which she talks about parables. And her main <coughs> gripe, peeve, is that we take the parables of Jesus and we boil them down Here's the story, here's the moral. We treat them like an Aesop fable. We treat them like a, a, a parable that is just, and the moral of the story is. And we're dissecting it just to get the moral rather than letting it wash over us. And this is a, this is a rubric of mine. This is not Amy Jill Levine's, but certainly it's something that, that in reading and using that even as a text for that class, book, uh, uh, class that I uh, teach has helped me to think 
about freshly looking. Because here's the other problem with the parables. We know them like the back of our hand. Most of you, I could call out a parable and say, would you please stand and, and, and share it? And, and, and you could. Now, there's a whole bunch of scripture we couldn't quote, but we can share those parables. Can I get an oh yeah? Because they stick. But we're going to look at the parables of Jesus through these four lenses. First, it's a love story. I'm just going to put that blanket over all the parables. Every parable, every parable. Every parable of Jesus is a love story. And within that love story, as we look, the first question is, who's the lover and who's the beloved? Who is the one that is loving and who is the one that is receiving love? And yeah, there's probably multiple angles on it, as we'll see. Then what is the obstacle? Now that third question is necessary because you can't have a story, a real story, without an obstacle. Uh, Bob wanted a drink of water, so he got one. It's a beautiful story. It's uh, rich in meaning and no. There's not a story, right? And yeah, okay, it's a fact. Bob wanted a drink, and he got a drink. The story is, Bob wanted a drink of water, but there was none in the house. Or Bob wanted a drink of water, but he could not find any anywhere in the desert. Bob wanted a drink of water, but he had no money to buy it. Bob wanted a drink of water, but he was chained in the corner of a cell and spent his day dreaming about the moment at the end of the day when they would bring him a small, dirty cup of water. You see, it becomes a story when there's something standing in between. A buddy of mine who teaches storytelling says, um, a story is very simple. Somebody wants something and they can't get it. And so, and then fill in the blank. A guy wants a girl. A girl wants a job. Two folks want a child. Somebody wants to get out. Somebody wants to get in. But, and then the rest of it. Now when I, I take that framework and I lay it on a parable as a love story and I look for the lover and I look for the beloved and I look for the obstacle my danger is if I stop there I've just been a you know a story exegeter or dissector where is the window what window you say remember when we said Jesus is pulling back the curtain that's a that's really a window curtain where is the place what is the vision in the story that helps us to see God Jesus said that they may know you, Lord. What if we said that every one of the parables was Jesus pulling back a curtain and giving us a peek through a window at the nature of God? Well, the first thing I need to tell you is you need to buckle your seatbelt because parables become different. Instead of simply bad guy, good guy, uh, uh, mean guy, uh, nice guy, you're going to begin to look past that and parables are frustrating. They're, I'll give you an example here in just a second. They're frustrating because when you start looking for the nature of God, you begin to see the reason why parables are so enduring. They're not simple. They're not wrap it up in a box. It's not an I Love Lucy episode. The parable is designed 
to stick with you after the teller is done and send you out chewing on it. My dad uh, grew up in Texas, moved out here to California. And back in the day in Downey, California, where he was the minister, Sundays was fried chicken day at our house. Anybody else remember fried chicken days? Yeah. Mom would make fried chicken. There'd almost always be somebody we'd invite over to the house. And when mom cooked a chicken, mom cooked a chicken. On the plate was the neck, was the liver. Somebody help me with some of the other pieces. The gizzard. Now, if you've never had a gizzard, may the Lord bless you and be with you. If you've never had fried chicken livers, there are places in the South where you can pull up to a Popeye's or a, a, oh goodness, Colonel Sanders and get fried livers. I used to take my mom. She loved the livers. And as a kid, my mom and I would both eye those livers, you know, and and think, oh, I, I want a bite of that. But my dad would take the gizzard. Now, the gizzard is just tough. I I don't even want to go into the biological issues of what a gizzard is, but needless to say, it takes care of things and, and, and it just stores things that are tough to digest. My dad, I never forget, would say, oh, that's all right, I got it. That's a poor boy's chewing gum. And he'd put that gizzard in his mouth and he'd begin to chew on it and chew and chew and chew. Well, that's my way of implanting this little thought in your brain. You can't get a parable just by reading it. You have to chew it. It's gizzardy. You have to kind of come back around and say, and once again, our little rubric here, who's the lover? Who's the beloved? What's the obstacle? But here's where I really got to chew. What am I seeing about God here? Now, to, for, for our example and kind of for our little case studies, we're going to go to John 15. If you have your Bible you want to open up there, that's fine, or your glowing tablet, whatever. Or if you have it memorized, you can sit back and relax. It begins with, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. By the way, why were they gathering around to hear him? I think because he's such a great storyteller. This is Jesus they're speaking of. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did what? Muttered. It's a word that means you know, kind of kind of grumbling and snarking. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, that is the prologue for the three possibly most famous. Ah, there are some other parables. The Good Samaritan ranks high. But for the three, the trio of parables, that is one of them, the most often quoted and written about. Three parables about a shepherd, one parable about a woman, pardon me, a parable about a shepherd, a woman, and a father. Now, remember our rubric, three questions. What are our three questions? Who is the lover? Who is the the love. What is the obstacle and where is the window? All right. So let's start with this first one. A story about a shepherd. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he, who's the he? Shepherd. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until, who's the he? The shepherd finds it. And when he, who's the he? The shepherd finds it. He, the shepherd, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he, the shepherd, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. 
And I tell you, in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What's the story? There's a shepherd who has lost a sheep. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and maybe even as a younger man, used lost sheep. Are you a lost sheep? And in that, I put the focus on the sheep. Sheep, oh, why didn't you stay with the shepherd? Oh, you need to get back to the shepherd. Listen to the shepherd's call, otherwise you'll end up a lost sheep. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that the word lost is a verb as well as an adjective. Because the first time we hear it, we hear it not about the sheep, but about the shepherd. Who lost the sheep? And whose fault was that? And see, see what I mean? It's gizzard time, folks. Here we are. Because we're saying, wait, 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 no, 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 no. It, because you all have already jumped ahead to the window. I know what the window is. The shepherd is God, and he loves us so much. Which, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to walk with you there, but back up and chew the gizzard with me. He lost the sheep. The shepherd lost the sheep. The sheep were just being sheep. What are you saying? God lost us? Chew on that a minute. What would it mean to think that the God who loves you so dearly made some kind of choice? that would allow you to get lost. Well, oh, Jeff, wait a minute. Are you blaming? No, 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 no. Just slow, slow, slow the roll. Just chew the gizzard. Chew the gizzard. One of the things that God did in the very first biblical story, after Adam and Eve have been created, he places man in the garden, and he puts something else in the garden. Now, this is a primal story that the Hebrews told their children so they could understand who Yahweh was. They put him in the garden, and they put, he put a what? Tree in the garden. And what does he say to the man? Don't, don't eat this. Okay? Dude, I've had kids. You don't put the cookies that mom made for her Bible study, for her book group, on the table and say to the three boys, now these, these are mom's cookies for tonight. So y'all can't have any of them. Do you understand? There's fruit bars up there or rice cakes or, you know, pasteboard to chew on. I mean, you know, here's, 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 here's all the healthy stuff we want you to eat. But those double chocolate chip cookies, both dark chocolate and white chocolate, mm, 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 don't touch them. 
what might have been a better parental approach? How about one, don't put them on the table. How about two, don't tell the children. I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of riffing with you here. Do you think that might make sense? There was a shepherd who lost his sheep. Well, now, wait a minute. That, that, that shepherd didn't cause the sheep to be lost. Well, in the story, that's pretty fair. But if I open up the window and I look at the nature of God and I see that God made a choice, he made a choice to let me choose to wonder. It's called free will. It's called the ability to choose. My dad used to say, God gave every man the right to be wrong. And it's true. There were ways to restrict that. But as another author says, if you take away choice, you take away love. God so valued love that he would give us choice. He said, well, what's choice and love got to do with one another? If you can't choose, you can't love. Well, what do you mean? I put a gun to your head. Nah, nah, even better. I, I, I take somebody you love and I put a gun to their head. And I say, you're going to marry this girl. No, no, if you don't. Oh, wait, no, oh, oh, I'll do it. Are you choosing? Well, in some kind of sense you are. But the truth is, I have removed it even better. Uh, let's say that the folks at Apple finally get to the place where a little device could be implanted somewhere right up here close to your brain that would allow you to, with a small controller, control your children. It's not like a zapper, but it's just a thing where, kind of like a gaming controller, you just move it and they just, oh, I've got some homework to do, and off they go. You press the button and they just say, oh, I don't want to hit him. So if you could get one of those for your spouse, just sit back and dream just a minute. Honey, what kind of food do you want? Indian food sounds great. Oh, okay, if you want it, they hate Indian food. All you have to do is just hit the button and you could get what you want. The day they put it in, he, she lost the ability to love you because you now control them. And love is based on choosing. Is everybody tracking with me? It's a hard gizzard because I've got a shepherd who let a sheep get lost. Now, one of the things Amy Gillivine says, there's a hundred of them. How in the world is a shepherd going to even notice one that's missing? I mean, I, yeah, I'll tell it. Back in the day, I had, we had three boys. I have gone home from church. Catherine and I have driven in different cars. Walked through the door and have her say, where's Spencer? I thought you had Spencer. Honey, I came up and tapped her on the shoulder when you were talking to those new people and said, Spencer wants to ride with you. No, I had only three. I lost one. We, uh, we haven't seen him since. Uh, <laughs> We heard he's living in Alaska. We don't know. No, actually, if you really want to know what happened, this sweet little couple, older couple at our church, I run out, I jump in my car, I'm flying out the driveway as they pull up to our house. 
open the door and our five-year-old that's what makes it really good <laughs> pops out of the back seat and they just roll down the window <laughs> is this yours <laughs> so what about a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep first thing i want you to know is he counts them every one counts who's the lover Oh, I do believe that the shepherd is the lover. I do believe that we're seeing into a window of a God who says, don't you dare discount her because she's fill in the blank. Don't you dare discount him because he has chosen to blank. I'm so nervous and i'm still trying to shed an old story and the old story is if you love someone you approve of them if you love someone you affirm their choices if you love someone you put a stamp of whatever you do is okay by me on them and that's just not true for god so loved okay if god loved the world we know there's things in the world in us that he does not like. In fact, the Old Testament will even give you a list. Here are the things God hates, and they're in us. I've got to understand by looking through the window at the nature of God that I can love my neighbor, love my son or daughter, love my friend who is making choices that make me just want to scream. So what does the shepherd do? You know, I told that sheep. I'd said, if you don't stay by me, you're going to end up in a cave someplace dying. And don't you blame me. Because I told you. I told him when he started kind of heading off around the edge, don't, don't, don't get over there. Don't, don't get over there. Fluffy, back over here. Don't get over there. I'm afraid that's a picture of God I had for a long time. And then I read this parable. Not only does he first lead the 99. Who do you love? It's easy to love the 99. Can I get an amen? It's much harder to see in the distance or even not see. He doesn't even text me back. She never calls. But to love love that sheep and to take responsibility for what you can do when the shepherd finds the sheep he doesn't beat it up he puts it on his shoulders and because it doesn't seem to be able to handle it he carries it and when he gets back to the house what does that shepherd do he puts that sheep in time out. He puts that sheep on probation. He says to that sheep, you stay right over there because I can't trust you anymore. He throws a my sheep's home party and gathers his friends. All right, gizzard chewers, I'm going to let you out of here, but you're not going to stop chewing because of what I'm about to say. If the shepherd is the lover and the sheep the beloved, 
obstacle. The obstacle is something that stands between the lover and the loved one. In this story, it's distance. The sheep does not close the distance. The loving shepherd does. And the window? Strange coming back. We have a God who is willing to close the distance between a wayward sheep who is willing to leave the 99 and go out there in the crags and the crevices and the hillsides and to pick it up and just even, what can I do? I'll carry you to see that sheep loved and returned. So how's that working for you? Who is your sheep? What's the distance you need to close? What does it look like to know that's how God feels about you and me? Bow your heads. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of harbor. Send us out chewing on this, Lord, because it's not supposed to be easy. Father, may we think about the sheep and the distance and what we need to do. God, I pray that there are some texts that might be sent today, some phone calls that might be made sitting in some pretty place on our campus to someone who is distanced from folks right here in this audience. Father, not calls to chew them out, not texts to remind them of what they aren't, but to let them know how they are loved. And then, Father, may we find a quiet place where we can own our waywardness and recognize we're not in the party because we found our way there. We're in the party because you carried us there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you in the name of the great lover, Jesus, in whom we all pray and say, amen. God bless you. Enjoy your next class.
How are we doing today? Wonderful. Uh, my name is Luke, and let me introduce you to my wonderful, beloved friend, Suzanne. Does everyone know Suzanne? Yes? Okay, we've got a few claps. Uh, yeah, I'll give you some claps. I'll earn the rest. Yeah. If you don't know Suzanne Stabile, she is a dear friend of mine. She is Enneagram master teacher, uh, author of a handful of books. Most recent one came out like 2021. Um, the, ooh. Okay, The Road Back to You, The Path Between Us, and then The Journey to Wholeness. That's it, towards. Towards. Yep, good. I don't get claps for that. I mean, that's, that's the best I can do. Okay. Um, I don't get clapped for that. What's no. up? She's written, but most importantly to my daughters, she is the woman that they love dearly because when we went to dinner, you said, hey, can I get you guys an iPad or something? Because you knew you and I and the rest of our family mm -hmm. would talk a lot. Mm -hmm. And my kids were like, thank you. This woman gets us. She wants us to have an iPad. Right. So if there are any kids in the room, she will not be offended if you have an iPad no, out. No, 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 no. Uh, I will be extremely offended, but she will not. And let me give you a backstory. About three years ago, uh, Mike and I were talking, Mike Hope and I were talking about uh, what to do with this session at Harbor three years ago. And I said, Harbor needs to have Suzanne Stabile here. And so uh, I talked to Mike, we arranged for you to come out and we were going to do this three years ago. And then I don't know if you remember, but three years ago, there was a little <laughs> thing called COVID-19 that happened. And so we had to cancel this. And not only did we cancel this, but when like COVID first started, uh, you and Joe were scheduled to come down to the church that I serve in Austin, Texas, and do a weekend retreat, and you're going to help me on Sunday as well, and uh, got canceled as well. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first time we've really done anything since COVID-19. And it's kind of fitting because there's a lot that has happened over the past three years that we've all gone through, that things are different. And I think you and I maybe probably should talk about that. Sure. Well, the first thing that we've never talked about is that any time, anywhere in the country for the last 25 years, that I'm invited to uh, participate with the pastor on Sunday morning, there's a natural disaster. Oh. So Joe's convinced that God doesn't want me to participate on Sunday mornings. <laughs> COVID is a little over the top. Like I, so I can only guess what the potential was for us on that Sunday morning. Do you think you could have told me that before we scheduled that? I feel like that could have. No, I've got one scheduled right now for Houston, and we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, so um, COVID changed every, every single thing. And I had the opportunity to travel all over the country and teach, and I sometimes get to teach internationally online, and is that how you say that? It sounds good to me. Okay, and um, I don't think we've caught up with the changes, but I don't really think we had caught up with ourselves before the changes. So I'm in this unique position of uh, teaching uh, 2,000 at least year old spiritual wisdom tools that um, is misunderstood by some and misused by some. Hmm. And uh, the Enneagram, when I started teaching, was nobody knew what it was, nobody, nobody, nobody. Mm -hmm. And so when people, when I was traveling, would ask me, well, what do you do? I would say, because uh, <laughs> I knew they weren't going to get it, 
and I didn't have an elevator speech at that point. Hmm. I do now. And that is, I teach that there are nine ways of seeing, and we all fall in one of those nine ways. And it's not true that we're all pretty much alike, because actually we're not. Hmm. And the Enneagram is spiritual wisdom, but unfortunately, it's misunderstood because of the symbol, which has nine points. A, a pentagram has five. <laughs> and it just is weird. Yeah. Did you come up with that? What? The nine... The design? Good. Avedrius Ponticus came up with that. You know what year that is? It's like fourth century, isn't it? What year? Ninth? Fourth, fourth, fifth century. See, yeah, Good job. You. Good job. Y'all, this is my husband, Joe, by the way. <laughs> He's the best human on the planet. Why I get to hang out with him, I have no idea, but I'm all about it. We've been married for 35 years, almost 36, and I'm still crazy in love with him. A little distracted right now, actually. So, Do, do I need to sit between you two? <laughs> no. I've seen this enough times. Yes, you have. I probably you? should. It doesn't change. Mm -hmm. So, so, so um, the logo, does it, not a good logo for the Enneagram. Well, it is because it's older than all the things that we make up about it. Okay. And it is because it's honest. So it's just, Enneagram is just g Greek for nine points, mm -hmm. that's all. And there are nine ways of seeing. And I know that sounds reductive, but it's not because the depth of the Enneagram after teaching uh, for a very long time, I haven't found yet. Hmm. So my new uh, work is probably um, gonna be the Enneagram in the pandemic huh. and what it has to teach us, but I'm learning first before mm. I start talking and writing about that. That's probably a good way to do it. What it did teach us, I think, if you know it, is how to be uh, worried about your job, spending all day every day with people you don't really want to spend all day every day with, that you happen to live with and love and enjoy, but it's just a lot. Um, I, I think it, I, I don't know the number of texts and emails that we've received saying uh, without the Enneagram we never would have made it through COVID. Hmm. So I'm pretty convinced that the duality that we're all trapped in and the either or thinking instead of both and thinking which is uh, seems to me that both and thinking is the gospel and either or thinking is not and um, I, I think this is the most important thing besides how much I love Joe and you that I've said and that is that you can't change what you can't name hmm. and so I uh, don't know what heaven's like I figure I'm gonna get there because I'm with him <laughs> that's my way in right there mm -hmm. um, but I, I would say to Paul were you, Paul, and me, me, I know why you do the very thing over and over and over that you don't want to do. It's because of your Enneagram number. <laughs> and I think because we all want to know about ourselves, Paul would lean in and say, tell me more about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Everybody wants to know about themselves. But I think it's because we want to know why we continually do the things that we don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram shows you that. But it also shows you that and how to fix it at exactly the same time. 
Can I ask you, you a follow-up question? Can, it, you're in charge. I know it doesn't <laughs> seem that way, but you no, are. No, it's never that way. Uh, we can't change what we can't name. Right. Enneagram's a tool that helps us name those things so that we can change, change them. them. Yep. And so as you're thinking of this project of what has happened over the last couple of years and how we're shaped by it in positive and not so positive ways, right. what are ways that we can learn how to name those things that have, that have happened or continue to happen inside of us so that we don't end up in that Pauline situation of I don't do what I want to do, but the bad I don't want to do is what I end up doing. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing and maybe the most important thing is that we have to own who we really are. We have to own what we think and feel and do, not just what other people see. Okay. And in the ownership of that, then we can honestly say to ourselves, I really wish I didn't do that. I, I wish I could stop that. Mm -hmm. The thing about the Enneagram is, you can hold it, it shows you what's wrong in your number. You don't need to take this personally. You're just one of billions of people who do the same thing you do and see the same thing you see. And so it shows you what you do in your number that's either healthy, average, unhealthy, in excess, or pathological. We'll not talk about that today. Mm -mm. And then it shows you what you can do to fix that at the same time. And what we're trapped in is either, I'm not changing anything. This is who I am. This is how God made me. And so you get over it. Or I have to change everything because who I am is not who I'm supposed to be. And so I've got to get better and better and better. But then they don't, we don't know how to do that because we haven't been able to name what we can't change. Hmm. So an honest self-inventory is first, and the Enneagram helps with that because everybody, like you and Joel, I bet, as sevens would have a similar self-inventory of the things that you don't like that you do as husbands, fathers, or girls, all the things. Yeah. And so then the question is, well, what are you going to do with that? And the cultural answer from our culture is, well, I'm going to make it go away. And unfortunately, as fun as that would be to think that you're in control and that you can make it go away. You have to learn this whole new thing about allowing that behavior to fall away rather than you being in charge and making it go away. Hmm. So if you think about the Enneagram this way, uh, think about when you were little, you needed certain ways of being in the world to do that effectively and to uh, adapt to teachers and parents and churches and all the things that people want you to do. So you work on that adapting by, uh, let's use the example of wearing a cast on your arm because these things have to be fixed. They need to be better. Well, if you wear the cast your whole life, then you lose the use of that. So Enneagram is this. The best part of you is also the worst part of you. And so you have to wrap your arm around all of you to move forward, and you don't get to make part of yourself stay behind. And so the way you do that is worse, mm -hmm. worse than what I've already said. I don't know why people like my stuff. <laughs> I just deliver a lot of bad news. So mm -hmm. worse than that is that the only, the only practice that really gets you somewhere is if you learn to kind of hover up here and uh, observe yourself and your behavior, but you have to do that non-judgmentally. 
So let me uh, put that in church context for you. I have a follow-up question. Oh, you want to do that now? Or you want I kind of want con- to. Okay, go. Non-judgmentally observe yeah. ourselves. Yep. Do you think most of us are judgmental about observing ourselves all yes. the time? Yes. And then we defend ourselves, and then okay. we're deeper in the hole. Then what would non-judgmental observation look like? I'm fixing to tell you. In church language? In church language. Perfect. All right. You got nervous when I started saying I was going to talk about church. I was like, okay, let's, uh-oh, let's uh-oh, get somewhere else. Oh, she's one of those liberal Methodists. We got to watch her. We do, yes. Yeah. All right. I just got to throw a few Bible verses in just to keep this going. Liberal Methodist, not Baptist. <laughs> Common enemy. I like it. It helps us yes, build community, doesn't it? Uh, okay, stop. Church language, mm-hmm. self-observation. So um, I know that y'all are from all over the country. Um, anybody from Texas here? There you go. Okay, well, uh, then if you're in ministry in Texas, you know that vacation Bible school in rural Texas is a competitive sport. (laughs) Right? Because that's what it is. And Mm -hmm. speaking of our friends, the Baptists always win. They do. They're good. They always win. Yeah. So Joe's a pastor, and he's got a thing. No announcements, none. At the end of worship, no announcements. Okay. So I'm sitting in my pew managing our four children, and I see this woman walk up at the end of worship to make an announcement. She was some of the things that I'm not in terms of height and long hair, and she didn't look tired. (laughs) (laughs) And she was in charge of vacation Bible school. And she had come up with some idea that if we Uh, could have homemade cookies. She didn't say these exact words, but everybody knew what she was talking about. We could beat the Baptists. (laughs) Now, in rural America, uh, our children were all saved in every denomination, whatever that saved means, because Vacation Bible School is child care in rural Texas in the summertime. And Joe and I really wanted to live in rural Texas. He's a cowboy, and he likes to ride horses and rope cattle and all that business. And I grew up in a farming and ranching community. It turns out that we can't stay in rural Texas. No, no, we're too progressive and one of us is too verbal. Doesn't matter who we're talking about though. So I'm thinking, eh, I I don't like to bake. I'm not gonna volunteer. So she's begging, and I'm not going to volunteer. And you know what happens if the pastor's wife doesn't volunteer? Yes, you do know, don't you? <laughs> what happens is this. And then they gossip about you. So I was just dug in. I'm not volunteering. I teach adult Sunday school. Nobody wants to do that. I'm not going to volunteer. And pretty soon, because... I'm an Enneagram 2, which means I'm a giver, which means I want people to want me, which means I do what they say when they need me when I'm unhealthy, and so I raise my hand. By the time I put my hand down, I hate this woman. (laughs) And I plan to tell Joe that she should never be allowed to be in this role again, which will make no difference, as you will see in the coming story, and I'm going to do it anyway. 
and I was thinking, you know, Oreos are great. You can take them apart. You can dip them. You can get three cookies instead of one. Mm -hmm. Why? Why would you want homemade cookies? Oreos are great. By the time I got to my car, I hated children because <laughs> they require cookies. Yep. Then, but I had it all worked out by the time I got home, and I only hated Baptist children. I so get that. then I baked all that hate into the cookies that I took with me <laughs> back to the church. But you know, in your Tupperware thing, when you take the cookies, if you don't count them and put your name on the bottom, right? You know, you have to write your name on masking tape on the bottom of the container because the people who manipulated you into bringing the cookies, count them. Mm -hmm. So, peace loving here, mm -hmm. all this whole time said, next year, why don't you just not offer to bring cookies? I said, next year, why don't you just get rid of her? <laughs> <laughs> so, we were neither one successful. Mm. I show up a year later, end of worship, and there she is. And I'm giving Joe the stink eye. And he looks down like he won't even look at me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there saying, I'm not bringing cookies. I'm not doing it. She's not going to talk me into it. I do a lot of things. I don't like to bake. I'm not bringing cookies. I'm not bringing cookies. <laughs> so self-observation the second year was, look at you, Suzanne. You just raised your hand again to bring cookies. But then I defended myself. Yeah, I did, because I'm the pastor's wife, and they expect, you know what people think we do? How many of you are pastor's spouses? Although I don't think it happens to guys. Oh, it, we probably aren't guys. <laughs> Never mind. How many of you are pastor's wives? All right. You know, they think that we have an extra gene, and they think we play the piano, and we love vacation Bible school, and we like to work in the church kitchen. And I don't, and I don't, and I don't. Same singing and playing through the Mount Piano. It's Church of Christ. Oh, God, I'm getting everything wrong. You're except that we hate Baptists. Yeah, together, we just right? stick with that. <laughs> okay. Stick with that. Sing on the praise team. They think we sing on the praise team. <laughs> Thank you. I was just in the bathroom going through all the things. Know your audience. Know your audience. Know your audience. You're doing great. You're doing really good. Extra gene. Pastor's wives. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I volunteered because people judge me if I don't. This is me talking to my observing self. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be judged. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm a, I have a new plan anyway, so I'm going to do something different. And I'm going to bring cookies. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So my new plan was I went to Subway. And I said to that guy who works at Subway, you know, that's always a sweet young guy right there. And I say, do you happen to, like, bake the cookies here? And he said, yes, ma'am. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And I said, could you, like, bake some for me, but, like, you know, mess them up a little bit, like burn a batch and <laughs> have them not look quite so perfect? Smart. He said, I don't know. I've, nobody's ever asked for that. I'll, I'll have to talk to my manager. And I said, well, then, would you please? And he said, yes, ma'am, I'll call you. And he called me and said, he guesses he can if I don't go too far. <laughs> So I said, deal. Yeah. So I put them in my Tupperware container with my name on the bottom, took them to the church, and I thought I had the whole thing done. And then this one says, you know how much those cost, three of those? 
We have a child in college. Do you know how much those cost? It's <laughs> eh. a lot of money. So um, the third year, <laughs> he didn't do things any better, but he says he was giving me an opportunity for transformation. Okay. And so? grace and love, because yeah. the same woman was sure standing there. She's still there. I aged three years. She didn't. She's the worst. Yeah. And I just took a deep breath, and she begged and talked about how close we were to beating other denominations, I guess, in saving children. Yeah. I don't know. And I just didn't raise my hand. And then I said, look at you, Suzanne. You're getting uh, an idea of what is yours to do and what is not yours to do. And since then, you know that the question I ask myself every day of my life is, what is mine to do? So all, all of that is to say that I spend my time when I'm teaching the Enneagram teaching people who they're not. Because your Enneagram is the personality that you have adopted and put on so that you can make your way in the world and not get fired from your job and make your parents happy and all the stuff. And uh, it's necessary and it's a good thing to have a personality, but there's a point when you just don't need so much of it anymore and the more personality you can let go of, the more you can get back to the essence of who God created us to be. Mm. And uh, if you can't change what you can't name, then if you can't name those pieces of your personality, you don't know what to allow to fall away. Mm. And so what I know now is that I'm still a giver and I'm still generous and that's still how I see the world. But I don't have to respond to everybody who asks me for something. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a follow-up question about the phrase, allow to fall away? Yeah, I'm fascinated that you're saying, can I? Like, Jim's talk to us. Enjoy it, because we usually aren't when we're together. <laughs> I don't feel very in charge at all right now, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, yeah. you've taught me this idea that there is this like divine essence, the, the true true self, as yep. Merton would call it, yep. uh, in Genesis one, the image of God that's yep. that we are all created with, um, and then we get all these layers to use your metaphors, like the, these casts or these false selves that we put on to get through the world because life is hard. You need to do something to give yourself a way to get going. Plus, people help you do that. Hold hold your things. People help you do that. So I remember distinctly walking into church one Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. I have an introverted child and an extroverted child, a seven and a four on the Enneagram. This one's your favorite? I don't have a favorite. Oh. So, <laughs> so I'm walking in, and I stop, and I say to Joel, the seven introvert, you need to talk to people when they talk to you. You're rude. They, they're trying to be nice to you. Now you respond and answer, and you need to shut your mouth. <laughs> you tell way too much to way too many people, and it's not their business. All right, now that's me offering to help my children add another <laughs> layer of personality on. See, if you're going to please me, then you have to talk even though you're an introvert and you don't want to, and you have to shut up even though you're an extrovert and just like me, and you don't want to. So it, just multiply that by one million times. And that's how we manage to get to adulthood. And then we don't need all of that for the rest of our lives. We need pieces of it, and we allow pieces that we don't need to fall away because if you want to make those pieces go away, it makes your personality bigger because you use your personality 
and the illusion that you're in control to do it. I just had a personal epiphany. How much am I allowed to you tell my over-talking child to uh -huh. like turn it down uh -huh. and my non-communicative child, mm -hmm. uh, my extremely introverted child, mm -hmm. to talk? I'm going to do a little, like turn the volume just a little bit mm -hmm. without like mm -hmm. stunting their growth. Would you turn it up just a little if you weren't a pastor? Okay, let's not do this in front of people here. Uh, Bankers aren't telling their shy child that they have to speak up and their extroverted child that they have to shut up. Mm -hmm. Next question. <laughs> I'm 72 and from the South and charming. I went to charm school in Lubbock, Texas. I get away with a lot. Mm -hmm. So... We're still even. Even? Yeah, I just, you know, just I just got away with that. Okay, your deal. Okay. Um, what were we saying before I had the existential crisis about my parenting trauma that I'm creating for my child? Um, they won't need much therapy. It's okay. They're going to go to you for that. <laughs> okay. As long as you give them an iPad. Uh, I'm all good. So we're allowing the false selves, the mm -hmm. casts that we put on ourselves, and yep. also because we have our well-intentioned father who's trying to help us, we yep. think. Uh, who forces us to do things that are outside right. of our truest self. Right. Um, so we're allowing, eventually, those to fall 